0: Hi everyone and welcome to Impressionable. This week I am joined by Charlotte and she's amazing and our episode is about being a care leaver and what it's like to live in care in the UK and how well the UK government um, looks after children that go into the care system. It's really interesting and Charlotte was incredibly vulnerable but it makes it such an amazing episode. I learned so much um, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Speak to you at the end, bye! Also, sorry about this current echo. That's not my fault, but the whole episode isn't like that. It's literally just this intro. Um, So the audio should be fine. Although, like, I've been having audio issues recently. So, yeah, please just not think about that. Um, And forgive me. Okay, thank you. Bye. everyone, welcome to another episode of Impressionable. This is the podcast where we learn about how the wealth has influenced each and every one of us. This week I'm joined by Charlotte.
1: Hi. How are you doing? Good. It's week three, four of time now. So getting towards tired but still going.
0: So for people that don't know you, do you mm-hmm. want to give a little context
1: on who you are? Yeah, so um I'm currently in my third year at the University of Cambridge studying history with a focus on 20th century history um and I'm originally from Birmingham and have worked with um children in care and vulnerable children before pursuing my degree and hoping to um continue my my studies to postgraduate level so, so yeah that's a quick amazing you Synopsis of A summary
0: rest. of you. Yeah, because we met up during my first year um, when you were thrown into being president of the whole of the college. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, just the students. I would never never take the job of president. That seems very stressful.
0: Yeah, I know. But you did an amazing job as student president. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Uh, so the first question that I ask everyone is, what's something that's made an impression on you recently?
1: um so I am currently surrounded by my books because I saw a video that said that it takes a thousand books to become a library um mm-hmm. so I'm currently in the process of counting all my books and I've just realized like I, I ne- it, it's so weird to me because growing up I didn't have a lot so being able to have these books at my dispense just means a lot to me and it's like it makes me very grateful because um, I think sometimes we get caught up mm. in all the like I know that books are material but getting caught up in the sort of more popular material things where I'm like some of these books cost less than a pound for me to buy second hand and it it's it means so much to me because it's mine and I can have it and read it and use it again and again and again so yeah um, That's makes, do
0: you feel like they're making an impression on you like what you're reading
1: um I think so like I've definitely read some books that have very morally corrupt characters. (laughs) um, And, you know, I think, so I really like, quote unquote, classical literature. um, And I think some of the characters in those are just the worst people to ever exist. And I try to actively not be like them. So, um, but then... uh, So... The obvious one is the characters in Lolita. Um, um and then I recently read well not recently, but probably last year read Crime and Punishment. Um, which just yeah. Um and then one of my favourite books is Normal People.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, um, the Rooney One. Yeah.
1: And um I'm trying to be better at communicating my feelings and emotions towards people, so they, they definitely all have lessons in them
0: oh 100% and they kind of yeah. do leave their own impression on you
1: yeah
0: I always found with normal people that like
1: yeah their inability to communicate with each other was yeah. just like so frustrating yeah you just want to shake them through the pages exactly just and yeah talk to each other yeah if,
0: if you if you were just honest mm-hmm. you would be so in such a better position
1: yeah but then the book would have been like two pages long so
0: that is true that is true um so obviously you talked about like some of your passions and the things that you're interested in researching while at university what is what's the background to that and kind of like how did you get into what you're doing now
1: um so I think I said earlier um I grew up in foster care and I think I'm in a very privileged position that I have had access to information about university, growing up. Um, you know, I, I had school teachers that, well, I went to a school that was underperforming. So as a programme, they did a mentoring ship with a local university. And through that, I kind of got an idea of research and academia. Um, so then I went into the world of work because I didn't get enough GCSEs to do A-levels. Um, and whilst I was working, I was like, I I really just want to go to university. Like that is something that I want to do. I want to have that experience. Um, so I tried the first time around, didn't love it, wasn't for me, just didn't get on with it at all. Um, so then dropped out and continued working and I was like, okay, I think I'm at a different point in my life now Mm. where I can go and do what I want to go and do. So I did an access course, um, which is equivalent to A-levels and uh, applied to Cambridge because I, I was like, if I'm going to do this, then I want to do it at one of the best. So I, I kind of just threw a shot in the dark and I, I never thought that I'd get in, but I was like, what's the worst? I lose a place on my UCAS application and it's like, it's not the end of the world. And then when I got here, I realised how. Little work is done not just on children in care but childhood in general in the field of history. Mm. Um, so then I, w- I would talk quite often with my supervisor, um, about the role of children in history if we were discussing like the welfare state or education or um economics, even because children as consumers are very much a thing. Um, yeah. so we started talking about this, and then that's when I developed the idea for my dissertation, um, which is an an exploration into the experiences of children in care from 1945 to 1990. Um, So it's, from what I can tell, it's its first sort of monolith, kind of, of Mm -hmm. experiences of care. Um, Because there's bits and pieces here and they all fit into other bigger histories, but there's no one history that focuses on this very thing. Um, it's all sort of hidden in textbooks and a page or so I really wanted to do something that just centered around children in cares voices
0: that's amazing I mean are you doing like oral oral histories as well like imagine that's quite uh, interesting to take on as a project
1: yeah it's been quite interesting to do the oral history element of it because of my own personal connection to it so Mm -hmm. um when I'm reading there's a degree of separation there but when I'm talking one-on-one with people it hits me so much harder and I think that's another thing that inspires me as well is like the power that people's words have that Mm. you know you could read them on a page and I think because it's in your voice in your head you are interpreting it in a different way whereas if someone else is telling it to you I don't know I feel like in a way it becomes more real um so so that's definitely been an interesting sort of part of the dissertation hundred percent
0: what was what was your experience like uh what was your childhood like
1: tumultuous to say the to to say the <laughs> least um so I was originally born in Stevenage and then um I have three older biological brothers. And we I, I'm the youngest out of all my siblings. So um, you know, things were very difficult for my mom, the more kids that she started to have, and she couldn't really um manage with the stresses of her life and then the stresses of raising children. So when it got to my time of being alive and gracing this planet, um I think it just became a bit too much for her so I went to live with my aunt in Southampton and then my aunt has two kids of her own and um, my cousin got really ill so she couldn't look after me look after my cousin and then look after my other cousin so um, at this point my mum had moved to Birmingham um, with her partner and I was about six at the time so those first six years of my life were up, down, here, there and everywhere and it didn't really stop until I was like 18 so um, I went to go live with my mum in Birmingham and that was definitely interesting because my mum's partner has um, three of her her own children so the household was just a revolving door a lot of the time like people coming in, out Um, and yeah there's definitely problems within that household um that aren't really my stories to tell um but for me things became very physically and emotionally abusive um living there so um about the age of 10 uh, school had made a safeguarding concern and then um I was placed into foster care and and you got I think a lot of people think that when a child's placed into foster care, their life becomes better and they live in a meadow of daisies and sunshine and it, it just very much wasn't like that. My longest placement was probably my most abusive. And I think there is where like my real passion to change the way that the system works set in because this foster care was very much just in it for the money. Um I would have to have all of her daughter's hand-me-downs whilst she went out and got a nose job and would walk around with so many Louis Vuitton things that it just it was like this doesn't feel like you actually care about the children that you're caring for and I I think looking back it's very weird but in a way I felt like The foster carer resented me in a way and I I never know why or she was just so spiteful for no reason. I I didn't do anything except live in her house so I'm, I'm very confused why people like that foster but then I think when you look at the fact that on average foster carers get paid £400 per week per child it makes a lot more sense why they do it um so then I I kind of found my voice at 15 and was like I've had enough of this and I I definitely did things that I wasn't proud of to try and get my voice heard but no one was listening to me at that point so I, I just resolved myself to cause as much trouble as possible until they moved me um so I think Taylor Swift recently released a new album And one of the lines is, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. And that was me. (laughs) 15 15 year old Charlotte can relate to that so hard. Um, But then I got moved to a care home. Um, Mm -hmm. They finally moved me and I was moved back into the area where my mum lived. And from the age of 15 to 17, I I was in this care home. And I definitely say those were the better years of my time in care um, towards the end but they definitely weren't the best years of my life. And I think a lot of that has to do with sort of a mix of teenage angst and also just the very strained relationship with my mother. That that there was one incident um, where my mum came to visit me, said some things, and they were the worst things I've ever heard in my life. So I broke down and it was also at the start of my GCSEs and it was just terrible I I ended up spending two to three months I can't really remember this time in my life all that well um about two to three months in the local um psychiatric ward getting getting therapy and I did most of my GCSEs on day release from the hospital and it was just the worst experience of my life and I'm very proud of where I've got to now given all of that um and then I was 17 and a half where I got the lovely news that every children in care gets that they should probably start preparing to move out because care kind of stops when you're 18 um so I made the decision to go into a a training flat and though that was quite isolating um like I think a lot of people see moving out as liberating and you've got your independence but I just felt so alone all the time um so yeah that was my time in care the brief history thank you
0: so much for sharing I have so many questions now that I didn't even prepare you for so I'm sorry in advance no go ahead First of all, could you shed some light on the context of how the foster system works? Like, what criteria does someone have to meet in order to take on a child? Like,
1: the first criteria is that you have to be above twenty three. The second is that you have to have a spare bedroom, mm-hmm. and the third criteria is that you, as the primary carer, don't have a criminal record involving children.
0: You but can't have you a- primary primary carer.
1: Yeah. So, so someone in
0: the house could.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you could still have a criminal record just as long oh, as it doesn't involve children.
0: Surely this, look like, where that's not keeping a child safe, though.
1: It, right. Um, and you could have a job as well. Yeah. And still get this £400. Like, that's the average £400 a week per child. And I think m- the maximum amount of children that you can foster is three. Mm. So that's £1,200 per week and the requirement for children's pocket money from I think the age of 12 to 15 is something ridiculous like £5 per week and then you have to set aside some for savings and then some for clothing but it's like £10 each in those folders so it's like Yeah, it's so bizarre to me the way that the system works and that, you you know, I feel like if this was any other industry in the UK, because with the amount of privatisation that goes on in, in foster care, it is an industry at this point. With the amount of money that is thrown around, with the amount of abuse that is in the system, if this was any other industry, there would be national outcry. Like, could you imagine if this was happening in the NHS? or the schools, or something like that. Like, it's just, it's really bizarre to me. That's,
0: I mean, you're right, I'm flawed. I actually am flawed. And I'm wondering as well about the intersection between, like, the cost of living crisis and if more people are going to be taken on children as a way to combat their own circumstances mm-hmm. and
1: what that means. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely think that statistically, retention of foster carers is quite high. Mm -hmm. and and there's no wonder right like if you don't like the child that's living in your house you can get rid of them and get another one which is just another bizarre concept to me but I definitely think that in theory I would expect more people to sign up to foster in the cost of living crisis but I just don't think it's in enough people's conscious consciousness Mm. to think hey there's this going on over here that we can I don't want to say exploit because I do know that there are some good foster carers in the system, but there are also, unfortunately, foster carers that do exploit the system, but that we could explore and try and make ends meet this way. And I think as well, whilst foster caring isn't an underfunded part of that sector, every other other profession in that sector is so criminally underfunded social worker retention is next to minimum because they just can't keep up with the demands of the job and the caseload so it, it like i just think that people see the way that the state is handling social services in particular and think that fostering isn't for them but yeah
0: i get that i mean i i feel like if you're going into foster care for the money it's not necessarily the best intention to do
1: it you know yeah you actually have to care about the children because every child that goes into care has been traumatized in some way and that can result in so many different projections of that trauma that not your average joe on the street could deal with like I don't know many people that could deal with the amount of sort of challenges that foster caring bring up which is also another reason why the criteria for it just doesn't make any sense you are trusting someone with this very vulnerable child who has no background in it no qualifications um and for the most part don't really care about the child but saying that there are some real diamonds out there
0: yeah i can imagine um,
1: i follow this this guy on twitter who's a local authority foster carer and every day he sifts through the Ofsted reviews for children's homes and calls pe- like these children's homes out on their failings and it kind of gives restores a little bit of my faith in the system mm-hmm. that there are people out there that really care about children in care um that they would because i don't know whether you've re- ever read an Ofsted report they are dense and awful and horrible and just i i I don't think I'd have the stamina to do that every day, but I'm very grateful for people like that that do have time in their day to sit there and hold, hold people to account. 100%. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm wondering how that sort of childhood has um, uh, an impact on the way that you view relationships and other people. Mm-hmm. How has it impacted your relationships as an adult? just like um, friendships, like relationships with, you know, tutors, yeah. anyone and everyone?
1: Yeah. So I definitely um, find myself in situations that I don't find many other people in. Um, and most recently, there, there's been this kind of, I think it's just kind of a trend, I think, in, in my behaviour and in my attitudes towards people where if they act slightly off with me, I think I've done something very wrong or like I'm <laughs> again, I, I'm the problem in that situation where in actuality it's more of a reflection on them. But I'm just so used to having to gauge people's emotions and feelings because if in the past if I didn't I I would be hurt and I I don't I, I don't know anyone who wants to be in that situation. So um kind of find myself Reading into people's behaviors and attitudes and stuff to try and predict whether I'm in the wrong. Um, nine times out of ten, I, I have done nothing wrong, and I am in the clear. And I've just made something into nothing, and uh, no, nothing into something. And um, yeah, but then I think also being in care results in me kind of institutionalizing a lot of my relationships. Okay. So um, some situations here at university are quite informal and quite sort of on on um a let's just have a chat kind of basis but then I want everything in in writing and I want everything recorded and like documented and it's like I, I find it hard to kind of get out of that mindset as well um and be more casual with professional relationships but yeah I I think also my time in care saying all that it's also positively led me to be a very perceptive person like I always know if one of my friends is not feeling right because their attitude just changes really quickly and I think as well I place such a high value on my friendships so it that's also another positive as well because I, I see my friends almost as my family so it's quite nice to have people in my life that care about me a lot and, and that I can care about a lot as well. So that's quite nice. And I, I think had I not been in care, I, I probably wouldn't be as as affectionate towards friends as I am. I, I don't know whether I worded that right, but yeah. It made sense to me.
0: and um, I wanna talk a little bit about like the perception that the general public has of care and Mm -hmm. the only ever like representation that I got growing up was like same as probably every British child my age was like Mm -hmm. Tracy Beaker and it was romanticized and it was a group of kids that were like maybe there was some rivalries but at the end of the day were the best friends and you know they had people that work there that like might be might be a bit stern, but they looked after them and so overall it was quite positive Mm -hmm. do you feel like that's a misrepresentation? Or what
1: um, do you think of that representation as a whole? Um, it, it's two-sided because on one hand, I really enjoy the fact that there is representation in the media. And when, you know, you say, oh, I was in care, people say, oh, like Tracy Beaker. And that's kind of a yeah. springboard for conversation. And and then I can be like, no, it was nothing like Tracy Beaker. <laughs> so that's also the flip side of that is that Tracy Beaker has completely sort of skewed the perception of children especially in like a British context because whilst I am still very good friends with the person that I was in a care home with we weren't you know climbing on roofs and eating mud pies and all of that I think it was a very very simple sort of existence in the care home you got up at the same time every day you got dressed you went to school and if you didn't go to school then you didn't get certain privileges and it, it was very institutional um so that i think tracy beaker is the child friendly um interpretation of care but then when you get into more mature sort of representations i think not a lot of people notice it but if there's a criminal in a tv show then he's often well they're often orphaned or they've been in care or i, I think the most sort of well-known example that I can think of is uh, Jamie Dornan in *The Fall*, mm-hmm. and also Joe in *You*. How the absence of parents is apparently what leads them to do the horrific things that they do, and it—it, I—I it, I don't think people would notice it unless they were looking for it or if they didn't know about it. But I—I I, I want people to watch something that has like a criminal character in it and see if they were either orphaned adopted or in care like those are the big three um so that's it it's just one of those things that i watch and i'm like ah here we go again
0: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot Yeah, I get you. I get you. I get you. Um, yeah, I didn't even. You're the same. Like I, that those sorts of things just pass straight over my head. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I don't even recognize it as being that. But you're so right. So I will keep a lookout. What about? Um, I'm wondering as well. Like, what about the difference in outcomes? Because when I was doing research for the podcast, Mm -hmm. there was like a big differential between, um. Care leavers mm-hmm. and people that grow up in like traditional nuclear, and they tend to do have very different outcomes, you know, past the age of 18, understandably. What what, what do you think being done, or like what do you think can be done?
1: So, I think the UK is in a little bit of a political crisis at the moment that they can't yes. really focus on these issues until they get to figuring out who's going to be prime minister of the country. Yeah. Um, so, I think a lot more can be done in terms of of getting children in school and getting them learning and getting them engaged. And I think there's this focus on academic achievement and that's not really what school is about in my opinion. Like, sure, you could get five A to C GCSEs and go to a university. And I, I know it's very hypocritical of me to say, you know, studying history a very academic course at a very academic university but there's so much more to life than educational achievements Mm. i also think that there needs to be regulations on privatizing in the system it just Mm -hmm. leads to very poor outcomes for children in care in my in my opinion can i ask how
0: it's privatized at the moment
1: um so at the moment there are like a handful of very big companies that acquire smaller companies that are managing children's homes and fostering agencies. And these big companies uh, merge with these littler companies to privatise and then they are not regulated to the same degree that local authority carriers. And then they also outsource a lot of their care to local authorities which makes care more expensive putting more pressures on um the local authorities they also offer foster carers and children home workers more money so they change over to private fostering and private caring which then puts another strain on the local authorities and um yeah you know it's one of those industries where you need the workers and you need the people to care so you're willing to pay this money. But it just gets extortionate. I think in my research, I, I came across one children's home that was charging like £4,500 per child per week. Per week? Yeah, per week of the local authority. And the local authority had no other option but to pay for it because it was the only available place for this child. Mm. Um, the children had um, some disabilities and learning needs that had to be accommodated for but I, I I, can't help but think that this private company really took advantage of that yeah um, and I think private companies charge on average 50% more than local authority carers so it, it's just it's bizarre that that's allowed to go on and I'd rather this money go to children in care 100%
0: and also like for private companies I'm assuming their biggest incentive is profit Mm -hmm. and not child welfare yeah um and i'm thinking like who would wanna why why would someone set that up if someone's like i know what's a good idea let's just make loads of money out Mm -hmm. of children and you
1: know what i mean like it's so bizarre to me that they're basically exploiting childhood trauma and i'm I'm just I, i read this these things and and just at such a loss as to how this yeah. is allowed to happen but it came about after some companies were lobbying David Cameron's government uh, back in the early 2010s and one of those big companies was g4s which is the awesome. prison ones yeah yeah so there is such a this is the most it's scandalous like I I don't know how else to say it like because children in care at any one time in the prison system children people 50% of people in prison have spent time in care at any one time or at least in the criminal justice system 50% of children in care that's such a high number and G4S is allowed to acquire children's homes there's a conflict of interest there like and and you're putting children in care on a conveyor belt straight into the prison at this point. Like how
0: who whoever like surely someone consented to this? Like who
1: people need to be held accountable straight up. Um, it was David Cameron and his government. Of course it was. Course it was. Yeah, Um I, I I do know I think it might have been Michael Gove that set up the sort of conference on it but yeah and it's just been allowed to happen since so this is this is why I get really annoyed when people are like oh the Conservative Party's not that bad and it's like you didn't have to grow up in care during austerity. Like yeah your whole life was not dictated by the cuts that they were making and not just the cuts but the decisions that they were making to sort of make up for that. Yeah. Um mm.
0: I, I wanna shred shed a little bit of nuance on this. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason that they would justify that? Is there any reason that they'd justify that partnership? That like what w- would be their
1: reasoning? That it took the strain off the local authorities. Yeah. yeah. Um without realizing that it would cause more strain yeah. on the local authorities by the overcharging and the um sort of leaving of foster carers to go and care for private companies also another thing to add that these private companies do is that they add uh they offer foster carers who switch from local authority to private companies golden packages so they offer them bonuses oh, no. and uh joining like joining price it, I don't know what the word is but like a reward for joining them basically and it's like
0: how is this allowed It's so bad. That is that is shocking. So bizarre. How how are we doing as like Britain compared to the rest of the world? Like in regard to our setup, are we one of the best? Or I mean, can can we even be one of the best at this point? How is it? We're not the
1: worst. So Which is kind of shocking in itself though. Yeah. Um so I would definitely say that the US is bottom tier worst of the worst, because they haven't signed the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child. So the US is the only country, the only member country of the UN not to sign it. It's the most ratified piece of legislation in the world. And they're the only... It protects children. Yeah. Um, Because, and and the US's justification for not signing it is that it um, puts children's rights above the rights of the parents. And it's like... Mm, okay whatever sure um barack obama came very close to signing it but it got fully busted um in the senate or something like that yeah
0: what horror filibuster day ow i'm gonna hunt them down
1: <laughs> i i can't That's remember exactly sweet. what happened but it um so it'd be interesting to see if biden picks that up or not um i hope they does trump wasn't going near it um but I, i in terms of like the british system you know it definitely has its challenges and its bad parts i think if it was funded properly it could be one of the best systems yeah um but unfortunately it's not it kind of gets outshone i think by like other countries that just have much better infrastructure Or like Um, proper bigger welfare states. Yeah, better welfare states. Um, So if you look at Scandinavian countries, for example, they have a lot of earlier preventative measures. Oh, okay. So, you know, one of the big reasons why children go into care is neglect. And I think sometimes poverty is used as a synonym of neglect. So... It, it's concerning that we're the fifth richest country on the planet and we have one of the highest rates of child poverty. Yeah. And that is a, obviously a safeguarding concern, and no child should be in poverty. So I, I do recognise why children need to be removed from those households suffering, suffering poverty. At the same time, there's nothing being done about the poverty after the child is removed. So there's no chance of reconciliation. It's just, you need to make enough money to put the heating on and then we'll give you your child back. But we're not actually going to help you with this. So, yeah, my mum at one point couldn't afford the bus fare to come and see me and she asked the social services if she could be reimbursed for her travel and they were like, no, you need to figure that out on your own. It's like, how how are you meant to have good relationships with your family if nothing is being done to rectify the problem that put you in care in the first place so yeah literally
0: literally and do you find that like because these things often cyclical like to people Mm -hmm. that grow up in care do they end up like then having children that that, Mm -hmm. that then kind of have those same systems because they're like I Mm -hmm. don't know how to look after a child I wasn't looked after after a child as
1: a Mm -hmm. child yeah there's definitely sort of that to it but also more shocking i think is the fact that if you are known to social services and as a child and you have a child before the age of 25 you are automatically referred to social services for evaluation stop it yeah and if you are deemed to be of concern then you are placed in a mother and baby unit so that they can observe your parenting so it's like, how are you meant to succeed in life if you just always feel watched and observed and like everything you do is an evaluation? I know so many people who have had kids who haven't grown up in the system that you kind of look at their parenting style and you're like, oh, that's, that's a bit spicy. Um, I, I'm not sure I would do that. But then there are also people that really need that help and support and aren't getting it because the system is just so overwhelmed um yeah and I definitely think like a sort of added comment to that is I do think if you you know you're 15 16 and you have a child and you're still in care then you do need that support I I I think 24 25 I I don't think you need that that level of involvement in in your life
0: Um, it's interesting that you kind of get told at 18, "Okay, you leave now? Mm -hmm. But then if you have a child at 24, they're like, oh, Mm -hmm. hold on a second. We did give you independence,
1: but now we're just Mm going to take it back. Yeah. So you leave care at 18. The support finishes at 21, unless you're in Uh full-time education. Then it continues till you're 25. But the support is kind of dependent on how much support you want as a person. So if you kind of decide at 18, no, don't want you in my life anymore, then that's kind of it. Whereas like, compare how I felt at 18 to even 20, very different opinions on life. And now I look at how I felt when I was fresh out of care at 17 and a half to 24 now. Like uh, I ring up my personal advisor like every day, like, hey, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? Like, it's Mm. a a whole different thing so yeah there are calls to make that support a lifelong thing but I think it goes back to that thing of the system is so overwhelmed and so underfunded that it needs to be better funded by the government and it all boils down to government's commitment to children in care 100%
0: I I feel like I'd be missing out on a topic if I didn't talk about Mm. like the class and even race intersections of care? Because they feel like in the public psyche, the idea of a child in care is usually, as you said, one that comes from poverty or comes from like more of a working class background. You tend to not see children that come from
1: like middle, upper class homes that tend mm-hmm. to go into care. So definitely, I, I come from a very traditionally working class family that was affected a lot more by austerity and poverty than yeah. you know, my middle class counterpart would have been. But I, I think it also this class bias exists in social work practice. So mm. one thing that I saw, I I need to stop being on TikTok so much. But I, I saw this social worker talking on TikTok saying she goes into a house, she gets them to open the cupboards, she looks around the house, and if there's food in the cupboard and you know the beds are made and the house is clean, then she doesn't suspect as much. But you know. That that's not really fair on those children that could be suffering yeah. unimaginable, unimaginable physical, emotional, mental abuse that you know would just go under the under the radar because you are looking to see whether there is a, a, a can of beans versus a fully stocked fridge in the in the cupboards and fridge and whatnot. But um, I don't know whether you saw recently. There was someone who had her scholarship kind of revoked because it was assumed that she was lying on her application about being in care. But because she came from a middle-class background, she went to private school. Her mum was so horribly abusive towards her, threw her down the stairs, and she did spend time in foster care. This was in the US, but Mm. it's like there's definitely a, a class element to it there i think like yeah. um i also think not a lot of middle class children go into care because they're not their families aren't seen to be reliant on the welfare state and social services definitely fit into the welfare state so i think there's that too um i wouldn't want to speak on the race dimensions of it too much because i am a white woman um yeah. but there, there's definitely something to be said for the frequency and the density of people from like black and ethnic minority backgrounds in care that then also go into prison mm-hmm. so I, I think the whole thing is is linked the, there's definitely something there and also going back to practitioner bias about what constitutes good parenting versus bad parenting there are cultural differences yeah um, yeah yeah that you know a white social worker going into um a west african household for example might observe some parenting that they're they they have not been taught is the quote unquote acceptable form of parenting and then sort of domino this whole removal process because they feel like the child isn't being cared for appropriately, but in actual fact, they are it's just parenting differently to how the textbooks tell you that parenting is. So that that's kind of what I have to say on that. Interesting. Let's move
0: on from this conversation slightly because I want to talk about your work and your interests before we wrap up. <laughs> um, and also, thank you for sharing everything. Like, I, I've learned so much. And every time you speak about it, it's just... You're so passionate and, um, yeah, I just really appreciate your time talking to me about that. So
1: thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'll talk to anyone that's willing to listen about it.
0: Perfect. Well, I'm sure you'll have plenty of questions when this comes out. Um, I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, like, your interest in women. Mm -hmm. And obviously you wrote about how, um, I'm going to butcher this, so I Mm apologise in advance, but... Mm -hmm. I'm quoting me verbatim here: How perceptions and creations of womanhood are altered when state bodies and institutions infiltrate personal family lives. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, and why is
1: it interesting? Why should we care? Oh, so this is a topic that I don't, I don't think is ever covered in feminist studies. And like, I, I focus on gender and feminism when I'm not focusing on children in care for my dissertation. So it, it, essentially what it means is womanhood is so linked to motherhood mm-hmm. that people don't really tend to separate them. And also the idea of womanhood has traditionally meant becoming a mother. So I'm interested in what happens to women's own idea of who they are and also society's idea of who women are when the state gets involved in issues to do with parenting so when social services come and visit your house when they remove your children the very thing that in society's mind makes you a woman has now been removed so what happens to your womanhood like do you feel less worthy of that title or do women in some sense feel a sense of freedom because not everybody wants to be a mom like I'm not even sure if I want to be a mom and if I was placed if I had a child I'm not sure whether I'd feel it it sounds horrible to say I'm I'm not sure I'd feel like like a mother Mm. but then I'd still feel like a woman so it's just this whole side of feminism that I don't has been explored and i'm very interested to explore explore that in postgraduate studies um and then there's also sort of the another way of looking at it the um lesbian women and trans women how they feel about motherhood and how that links to their perceptions of their own womanhood and there's just so many things to explore in that that if if the unis I've applied for give me a chance I'm very looking forward to it. I hope they do I really hope they do that's so interesting because I always think
0: about that question like what does it mean to be a woman Mm -hmm. what does it mean and I don't have an answer for myself.
1: Yeah like you know this is a question that has plagued gender studies for centuries and you know i i think i think the very fact that nothing can define being a woman is kind of what makes womanhood such a interesting concept Cause because it's just like
0: uh, it's like a construct right
1: <laughs> yeah you perform feminine acts mm. and that makes you worthy of a woman but you have to perform them in such a meticulous and socially acceptable way because if you don't then your womanhood is questioned
0: Mm -hmm. like
1: between masculine and your performance of feminine activity then you are disregarded and if you Mm -hmm. perform too feminine like if you're too (laughs) feminine then you're accused of being a bimbo or dumb or it's a very weird sort of Corridor that you have to walk mm. on a very tight line, and the walls are closing mm. in. It's like that scene out of Don't Worry, Darling, where the wall is just crushing Florence Pugh to the yeah. window. So yeah,
0: that's so interesting. And I never thought about how the state would intersect on my own perception of who I am, especially in regard to like if I was a mother. Yeah, that's so cool. I I'll be emailing those administration people, being like, give my girl Charlotte uh, all
1: the <laughs> needs. Well, I'm hoping to apply to Liverpool, so, you know.
0: Listen, <laughs> my hometown, it's incredible. I'll give you all the best spots to go mm-hmm. to.
1: Yeah.
0: um, And I, I mean, anywhere you get in, I'm sure, you know, because you've got the passion for it. It's about the supervisor, isn't it, when, when yeah. it comes to these things?
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, My supervisor at undergrad is great and really receptive to my ideas and helping me kind of, get them down on paper so i, I think supervisors have such power to mm-hmm. make or break your experience Hundred yeah. 100
0: i've definitely found that with people that i know that had uh similar experiences like some people smashed a dissertation because them and their supervisor mm-hmm. were so into it and then other people yeah. were like i didn't really get any help or we just didn't gel and then it kind of just flopped yeah. which was neat
1: yeah
0: i have um i have one final question for you before I let you go, and um, it is what impression would you like to
1: leave on the world? I was recently at an event where it was talking about children in care and care leavers' um, achievements, but so many of the statistics were negative. I think my the impression that I'd like to leave on the world is one where children in care are capable of so much and we shouldn't shoehorn them into this underachieving disadvantaged underprivileged category i i shouldn't be one of the only people in cambridge that has had experience of care i shouldn't be the only one in a job that's had experience of mm-hmm. care i think foster care and all its many iterations will be here as as long as the world is still a thing I I think you Mm. know because there are still going to be morally corrupt people who do unspeakable unspeakable things for children and you know sometimes you just don't get on with your parents (laughs) like it's a personality clash or whatever but that's that's the impression that I'd like to leave on the world foster children um, and children in care deserve the world i completely agreed
0: thank you so so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story and telling me so much of that i didn't know before
1: no worries. thank you for having me i really enjoyed it
0: if people if people want to reach out can
1: they do so yeah they can um yeah, can they find you on instagram at charlie tyler but the ian tyler is an x Very excellent. Very accessible (laughs) name for people. I'm like, yeah, it's Charlie Tyler, but the E and the X and you Okay, don't worry.
0: Thank you so much again. Thank you. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Impressionable. I have been your host, Becky Lee. This podcast was co-produced by Darcy Bevins. Um, and if you liked it, please tell your friends or rate us or share on your stories or whatnot. You can find us at Impressionable Pod, so that's at the word impressionable and then P O D. Um and yeah, I always love hearing your feedback and your kind words. It's really, really appreciated. So, thank you so much and have a great week. Bye!